Welcome back to our study through Matthew chapter 18. We're in day three today, and we're going to talk together, verses 15 to 17, about what to do when another believer sins against you. Yesterday, we talked about what to do to have the heart of God for other children, other believers. Jesus very honestly then goes on and talks about the fact that sometimes we struggle in our relationships as believers. So what do you do if a brother or sister sins against you? Verses 15 to 17. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show them their fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So real clearly here, God says, here's how you handle, here's how you handle a situation where another believer has sinned against you in some way. Something that they've said, some way they've treated you, some financial transaction, they have sinned against you. How do I handle disagreement? And Jesus specifically says here the kind of disagreement that arises out of their sin against you with a fellow believer. Well, there's a wrong way and a right way. The wrong way is gossip. Proverbs 16, 28 says, gossip separates the best of friends. There is no sin that can tear a church apart quite so quickly as gossip. Gossip is simply talking to others about a problem rather than talking to the someone that you have a problem with about that problem. Now, the truth is, we never, we never call it gossip. We call it talking about the problem, getting your opinion. We call it relating a spiritual concern, or even our favorite is, I'm just sharing a prayer request. The truth is, if you're talking with someone who's not a part of the problem or part of the solution, it's gossip. Now, what's so destructive about gossip? Gossip magnifies the problem rather than dealing with the problem. When you start to gossip, you've involved a lot more people. The problem is bigger. You've intensified your feelings by talking to others about the problem without getting any resolution, not getting to the root of the problem. You've made the problem bigger emotionally. That's what happens with gossip. So that's why it's the wrong way to deal with it. The right way to deal with it is to confront it. I've got a problem with another believer. The right way is to confront it. Now, let me share with you a couple of passages. First, let me read again Matthew 18, 15 to 17 uh, in the New Living Translation this time. And then let me also read for you Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Go back and read those verses again that we studied earlier. Because it talks about what to do when a believer has sinned against you and what to do if you've sinned against a believer. First, if they've sinned against you, again, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won the person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. If he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. So that's what you do if they've sinned against you. What if you've sinned against them? Matthew 5, 23 and 24. If you're presenting your sacrifice at the altar in the temple and suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. In every case, you go to the other person. Matthew 18, you go to the person with whom you have a problem, and you talk it out face to face. The majority of the time, I've found, the problem is resolved right then and there. If you realize that someone has a problem with you, are you supposed to just sit back somehow and wait for them to come to you? Well, the Bible says if you've done something to hurt someone else, you go to that person. You go and talk to them. 
So in every case, God makes you and I personally responsible for doing something about solving the problem. I go to them if they've sinned against me. I go to them if I've sinned against them. If we were like perfect Christians, we'd meet in the middle every time. Either way, it's our responsibility to go and resolve the conflict. Now, just note here that Matthew 18, when it says to go and resolve it and then bring it before the church, it is about sinning, not about having a disagreement. The fact that you see something differently than someone else does not mean they've sinned against you. It might feel that way, but it doesn't mean that. Of course, this first step in the process, it works even when it's a disagreement. Go to the person even when there's a disagreement. But you don't take it to the church over a disagreement. Now, this process in Matthew 18, I have shared it literally hundreds of times with people as a pastor. There have been many, many, many times when someone has come to me and asked me to confront someone who they say, I think they've been involved in a sin. Usually it's against them, some way that they've hurt them. And my question always is, from Matthew 18, have you talked to them first? Before you get the church involved, the Bible says you go talk to them first. And the answer almost always is, no, I haven't talked to them. And so I say, well, you go do that and see how it goes, and then come back and we'll talk. And one of two things almost always happens. 99% of the time, these are the two things that happen. One, they go and talk to them, and then they come back and they tell me it was resolved, and their relationship was strengthened because they talked with the two of them as fellow believers. Or the second thing that often happens is people say, well, I decided not to go. It wasn't really that important anyway. It really wasn't a sin as I started to think about it. And I think, well, wait, you, you wanted me to go to them as the pastor and like use a spiritual club on them and say the church is upset with you, but when you had to go, you thought it through enough to realize, well, maybe it wasn't as serious as I was thinking, which is one of the reasons God challenges us to go because we have to work through our thoughts that way. Now, the 1%, does it ever get to the stage of going to the leaders of the church? Very rarely, yes. It's usually going to be a matter of church discipline by that time. It's very hard once you go to the leaders of the church to now resolve the conflict. Sometimes it happens, but not very often. I've found that most often when it comes to the church, it's a matter of finances. Someone's cheated someone else financially. It's very clear, but they won't let go of it. People trying to take advantage of their relationships often in the church. They come into the church to make friends in order to make money instead of coming into the church in order to know Christ and to grow in Christ. So the Bible says if you bring this to them and they say, no, I won't listen, the Bible says you're supposed to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. Now, what does that mean? That does not mean you're condemning them to hell. Only God can judge. It just means that you treat them like they're not a part of the family of the church anymore. They're not accepting the discipline of the family. They're not accepting the wisdom of the family. So you just treat them like they're not a part of the family anymore. Now, does that mean you stop loving them? Of course not. Of course not. We're supposed to love everyone. We love even our enemies. So you don't stop loving them. You might stop trusting them in certain ways, but you still love them. Does that mean you can no longer see them? (laughs) Treat them like a tax collector. Did Jesus ever see tax collectors? Absolutely. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, the person who's writing these words, Matthew, was a tax collector that Jesus saw, and then he went to a party with a bunch of tax collectors. So it doesn't mean you can't see them anymore. It just means you realize they're not acting like a part of the family. Does it mean they can no longer come to church? Well, treat them like a pagan. The truth is we were all pagans when we first started to come to church. Some of you were two-year-old pagans. Some of you were 20-year-old pagans. Some of you were 80-year-old pagans. Pagan just means you're living your life apart from God. And until you know Jesus, we're all living our lives apart from God. Now, 
There is one thing I do want to say about this. Of course they can come to church, but if people are coming to church to sin and not to worship, they're coming to church literally to prey on people, maybe financially or relationally, then that's a different issue. A 40-year-old man who wants to be at the college group filled with 20-year-old girls is not coming to worship. It's, I'll see you at the men's Bible study on Thursday morning, buddy, but you're not welcome at this meeting. You just need to have honesty about those kinds of things. But he can still worship. He's still welcome to be at worship. Jesus ends this discussion by talking about the importance of what he's just said. He talks about the importance of what we're protecting. Because what we're protecting when we go to each other, we talk to each other, we work it through, we're protecting our fellowship. We are protecting the power, the influence, and the significance of our fellowship as believers. Verses 18 to 20, Jesus taught, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Where, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. So Jesus talks here about the power of our agreement. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And Jesus repeats that statement here. Jesus talks about the power of our prayers. If two or three of you agree that something is in the will of God. Now, the, what he's saying to us here is if even two or three believers agree that something is in God's will, it is much more likely that it is his will and not just my will. But I want to remind you that just because we agree and God will do it, doesn't mean he will do it exactly how you want. And it certainly doesn't mean he's going to do it exactly when you want it done. I'll never forget the experience of, as a young pastor. Our church had been flooded and destroyed, and we needed to buy new land and build a new church, and we were able to do that, a longer story, but after we'd built the church, I was sitting in my office one day, and a pastor of another church came by. I'd never met him, and he said, I'm the pastor of the House of Prayer up here, and I, I want to tell you, like six years ago, our whole church came, and we knelt on this land that you bought after the flood, that you built a church on after the flood, and we prayed, and we claimed this land for God's church. He said, we were claiming it for our church. We were hoping we were going to build here. We didn't realize we were claiming it for your church. But with great humility, he said, that was the plan of God. That was the plan of God. So sometimes God will do it in ways that you don't expect, in times that you don't expect. But when believers agree, there's great power in that. He's also talking here about the power of the promise of Jesus' presence. Two or three gathered together, I am with them. Now, God's always with us. He's with you all the time. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. But this word with, the Greek word mesos, it means among them, in the middle of them. It has the idea of Jesus is in the house. Here is Jesus. He's in the middle of everything. The presence of God is felt powerfully when we're together sometimes praying and worshiping as believers. And oftentimes, you're going to best experience God's presence when you're with other believers. And so Jesus says at the end of this, here's the reason I'm talking about this. Not dealing with a sin can weaken all of these. And I want these to be strengthened in your fellowship, the power of your agreement, the power of your prayers, and the promise of Jesus' presence. Let's take a minute to enjoy his presence together right now. Our Father, you said two or three together. You were right there with us. So right now, we take a moment to take in your presence, the fact that you are here. We know you're always here, but sometimes we don't think about it. Sometimes we don't recognize it. So we take a moment right now 
to think about it, to recognize it, to know that you're here with us and you'll be with us through the rest of this day. That you'll be with us through the ups and the downs, the difficulties and the great opportunities. Jesus, thank you that wherever we are, we can depend on the fact that you are with us. And Lord, I want to pray right now, particularly for those who are having a struggle in a relationship with a fellow believer. God, would you give them wisdom? Give them wisdom for the right thing to say. And then, God, would you give peace? That once they've followed what you've said, that they could let it go into your hands. Give that peace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tomorrow, we're going to see Jesus answer the question, how many times should we forgive? Forgive.